Northotago. It's rich Gary, in history. Welcome back to Northotago Legends up and comers and, and a little bit of history. That good afternoon. All that is good How you doing? I'm, do, I'm doing all right. You? Join yeah, Gary good. And I noticed a lot of Aussies over here at the moment. They interview oh, a legend yeah, or someone the who is putting Northotago yeah, on the map you know, yet again. Come over here and ski in meters of snow and up and comers. You know the centimeters they've got over there. Yeah, it's been a great season. Have we noticed a lot of it in Northotago? The tourists coming back in, or mainly just Queenstown and Central at this stage? Well, we've done well over with the domestic visitors so that's all we've been good all the way through yeah. Um, and yeah we're, we're certainly noticing different accents um, people out on the streets and so on so it's picking up yeah. um, you know I mean the reality is we don't want the tourism that we had before we want um, you know people to come here stay longer enjoy themselves more uh, and have a really good experience so you know that's what we're aiming for. See North Otago has so much to offer and it's turned around and you like my segue here North Otago used to be this dry, barren old place, but actually mm. now it's, it's lush and fertile with, with um, you know, we've got irrigation and we've got things like that, don't we? We do and, indeed. And it creates a better vibe in North Otago bringing people here. Yeah. And yeah. one of the people responsible for that irrigation, you like the segue? Oh, you're doing well. Is Jock Webster. Indeed. Today on the podcast we have Jock. How you doing, Jock? Very well, thank you. Yeah, good to have you on the podcast with us. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks for joining us, Jock. Um, so, yeah, we just want to hear a bit more about that irrigation side, but there's a whole lot of other things that you've been involved with along the way, so we're keen to hear more of that um, as, as we go through the interview. Well, let's start off the basics. Are you an Omru boy, or when did you move to North Otago? Uh, when I was about six months old, we my father had a farm in uh, Waterhuna West. I was born in Lawrence, and uh, when I was six months old, he was given six months to live. So he thought he should do something for his family, and his brother had previously moved up to North Otago, so he moved up to Hamden, and they stayed there for about 15 months, I think. And then we moved to Weston, and uh, he had a 20-acre block there, uh, which was he later subdivided it, and um, it was quite a challenge for him. Um, he had to sell the farm for the same price as what he had purchased an adjoining block for, and he always talked about the dirty, rotten, stinking Labor government uh, because they had fixed land prices, so he had, had, yeah. he had no opportunity um, in, I don't know what he got, £3.10 an acre or something. Uh, <clears throat> but we buried him when he was 103, so uh, the doctors probably outlived most of the doctors that told him he had six months to live. Well, he showed them, didn't he? He did. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Like, yeah, so they just got it wrong, or he was just a very determined man and outlived? Oh, yeah, yeah. I wonder whether he had some mental health issues, or they said he had a crook heart, but yeah. mm. who knows? Oh, mm. well, you'd be pleased to have had him so long. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah that's no, good. it was, was great. So you, you, you moved here, you had uh, 20, what was it, 20 acres, 20 hectares? 20 acres. Yeah, 20 acres. And so, hectares. so what, what was he doing with that? What was he? Oh, I just ran it as a wee. Had a few sheep and yeah. a few chooks and uh, yeah. an Argyle Street in Weston. And we'd pot around there and he worked on farms. And 1953, he bought a TEA Ferguson and used to go out and do a bit of contracting and okay. mow the parks for the Omaru Borough and a few jobs like that. And, 
come home some days and say how he was mowing past a tree and it suddenly shot up in the air. He'd actually cut it off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, we can certainly see where you got your versatility of skills from because obviously he, he got involved in whatever he needed to get involved and to make a living and um, you know to do what he do the right thing by the family. Yep. So we just uh, I had three older sisters and um, we lived in Western and mm. that was home. Yeah. yeah. And so um, it would have been a very different Western at that stage. Obviously, you know, a lot fewer houses and uh, a lot lot less development at that stage and. Um, yeah, you will have seen a lot of change over the years from that. No doubt about that. We used to bike down, Les Gray used to live down the road, down Gordon Street, and it was uh, there was grass down the middle of this gravel track, and we used to buy, ride our bikes, our trikes and bikes down there, and yeah. it was very different. So Gordon Street was just a gravel track with grass on it? Yeah. Oh, wow. In the middle, yeah. yeah. And Western School was there then? Yes, yeah. So that was your first school, Western? Correct, yeah. yeah. Right, and so okay, you you um you haven't you haven't moved far from there at uh, you know for, from where you are now, but uh, over the years, what, what what happened? Did you 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 went through school? Did you go straight out working from from high school? No, I um I I wondered what I should do. I always dreamed about being a farmer, and my father always used to say, I don't want to buy that with stones, and I'd go away to bed and cry because I thought he'd never see me farming. Um, and that's what I really wanted to do. Mm. As I grew a bit older, I realised I was lucky enough to have a head that worked not bad, and I thought I probably should use that. So I went to Lincoln, uh, got a degree in ag science, and then became a scientist with uh, DSNIR. Uh, I'd shot over to the States the, over the summer before that because I, I was a bit of a ski racer in those days. And... I came back and um, tried being a scientist for 13 months, but it wasn't for me. Was it just been stuck in an office or laboratory or something like that? Oh, Is that- yeah, people would breed wheat for 15 years before they got a result. I'm, <laughs> I haven't got enough patience to do that, really. <laughs> that sounds about just right. So, want to just go back a wee bit. So, Boyce Ice and Kevin's, which one was No, Waitaki Boys. Waitaki Boys. Yeah. And you enjoyed your use there? Yeah. First yeah. 15? Uh, yep. Yeah. Very Just good. for one year. Prefect? Yeah. Uh-huh. Head of Forrester? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm three from three. You can ask the question now, <laughs> Gary. Well, yeah, club rugby, you got into that. When you, I'm uh, going to ask about the ski racing. Yeah, no, we'll we're going to get back onto that yeah, too. Definitely. Yeah, I got it. I, when I came back to North Otago after being a scientist, um, that was in 1972, and you suddenly didn't know anybody. Um, I came back with Kim McLashen, who had been a year behind me at Lincoln. He was with the Farm Advisory Club. And in those days when you lived in Omaru, every weekend would say, where are we going to go to this weekend? Because you never stayed in Omaru. It just wasn't. There was nothing happening. Uh, so, But you still needed to get to know people. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Doug Hurst about going to play rugby, so I got back into rugby. Right. Fitted that in with a bit of skiing. and So you joined there? The, the, the club the, the Hursts were with, which yep. is the old boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. So, yeah, and, and, and did what, what from there? Did you get on to North Otago, or how did that work? Yeah, I ended up playing for North Otago. I spent one season playing for them. I thought it might have been nineteen seventy four, and then I went to the UK on a Young Farmers Exchange in nineteen seventy five. So that was that season gone, and. Mm. 
uh, I played through to about 77 or 78. And So we had a, a, Damien and I had a wee bet about what position you played, and he said halfback. I, I thought you'd probably more burly than that, probably up front, but what, what, what position did you play? I played, oh, for old boys, I played just about anywhere in the paddock. Um, so we're both right. But for, for North Otago, I didn't play, never played halfback. <laughs> I used to play on the side of the scrum and... Um, prop and I was really a hooker come prop when right. I was at school I was a hooker yeah mm. and um, you play against any big names because back in those days you got to play all blacks and those kind of things didn't you you didn't it wasn't all just NPC and you didn't see them so who did you play against yeah for, for my size sort of 176 centimetres and I don't know what I was then 80 odd kilos um, propping against the light of <coughs> the likes of Hopkinson and Hooking against Ken McRae, they were just, if you had three scrums in a row, I was just absolutely exhausted by the end of it. Uh, so it was pretty hard work. What are they? Yeah. And who'd they play for, Wairapa or someone like that, or did you play? No, Hoppy was playing for Canterbury Country, I think, oh. in those days. Yeah. Um, Ken McRae was uh, Southland, of course. Uh, that'd be pretty awesome, though, coming up against, you know, some named players like oh, that. Yeah, I just sort of took it in my stride and yeah. carried on and... Tried to keep breathing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, back to the skiing. So, yeah. You've we, just we didn't know that, that about that you about went it. to America. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Um, my sister took me skiing at Coronet. She was going with a couple of mates when I was about 12, I think. And we went there and and that sort of got me into skiing. I uh, went to Aokino for two or three ski schools, I think, when... I was at high school. Uh, then when I went to Lincoln, I got into ski racing and um, I was probably a bit better at it than I expected to be. And so I ended up skiing in the top seed. That's the top group of six uh, in New Zealand. So I did... I found that pretty enjoyable and you ski just about in every... There's not many ski fields in New Zealand I haven't skied on. Um, it was... I didn't. I did okay. I, probably, I think I got second or third in Broken River Trophy one year, which involved the national skiers. But uh, generally, I was just sort of thereabouts. Mm. I might have got fourth in the Coronet Cup one year, so I wasn't. I was okay, but I wasn't that special. Yeah, mm. yeah, get fast enough to do some damage. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And a lot of people used to watch me skiing and say, "Oh, they can, they'll take up ski racing too." But they couldn't. They couldn't quite. Obviously, I was a bit of an ungainly-looking skier, but I could perform a bit better than what I looked. Yeah, oh, good yeah. stuff. And then I was a New Zealand ski team selector for several years while I was racing, which was a bit. I thought it was quite ridiculous, really. But so you're the New Zealand ski team selector. That's yeah. a lot. How many people know that about you? Do they? Oh, probably very few. But that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> what did that involve? Oh. Well, uh, you're selecting the teams that went to the Olympics mm, yeah. in conjunction with, yeah. So did you... Three others, I think it was. Mm. What was the highest level you performed at? Oh, and, and you're skiing nationally in the national champs. Yeah. Um, Coronet Cup was sponsored by Mount Cock Airlines and they flew you there and looked yeah. after you. And right. Were you far mm. off making the Olympics, do you think? Or oh, no, no, it wasn't in that league. It wasn't quite in that league. But, yeah. Sounds like a good time, though. It was yeah, it was challenging. Um, yeah, up there in all sorts of conditions. It's quite different to 
Because well, things it, are like today. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's quite something actually to you know do really well in a team sport like rugby, um, and then to go and do really well in an individual sport like skiing. So, yeah, very versatile. So, what other sports did you play? Anything of note? No, nothing of note. I uh, played a bit of squash when I came back here again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that was about it. Right. So you moved. Back, you, you stopped being a scientist. You, um, yeah. So, so tell us about from that point on. What, what did you do there? Yeah, I got. I decided that wasn't for me. So I started looking for jobs, and um, there was a couple came up. Um, one was managing the Waitiki farmers freezing uh, farm that they had a farm up at um, well, Odi, I suppose it was in those days. And then Ross Mitchell, who was my brother-in-law, uh, he was battling a bit with the management of the farm and knew that I wanted to go farming. So they said, if you come back and and, and work for us, we'll try and help you into a farm one day. <clears throat> so I looked at that and looked at their books and uh, he put me on the same salary as I was on when I was a scientist, um, which in those days was about 5500 or something, but significant. Mm. Um, for an agricultural worker. So I went back there and um, within a year I was running the farm really and we worked how we worked hard because um, they had a few issues and they were building a granary at that stage and it was half finished and, and we used to work till well into the small hours of the morning every day and then um, have Sunday off. And so they, they were largely doing cropping, farming at that stage? Yeah, they, yeah, they were all crop then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, you got the hang of the, that industry and, um, yeah, went, went from there. Yeah, very much so. So we went into partnership in uh, 1976 with Ross and his brother Bruce and uh, I farmed with Ross for 45 years. So it was hugely successful and um, set me up. So, so tell us a wee bit about the, the farms, you know, the, what, what you actually did and actually you know, where, you, where you got to uh, working alongside Ross and the family. Yeah, well, we, uh, Ross, the Mitchells were very visionary people and had great ideas. And Ross's father, Jim Mitchell, who was, he was equally visionary and was, um, if you go back, uh, you probably don't remember him because it's a fair while ago, but uh, he was chairman of several companies, uh, was always thinking ahead and thinking of alternative ways of doing things, which was good. So you always learn when you're in the, that environment. And as I said before, and within 12 months, I was sort of managing the place. Uh, but Ross had ideas of, of how things could happen. And, and even in those days, we started having meetings where you'd have a wet day, so you'd sit down and do some planning. And, and I'd got into the planning of doing Gantt charts for our building program so that we got things done and things weren't being done at the last minute. So I guess I had some few skills and from a management point of view, but it was the the formality that Ross introduced into the game. Really, we had formal meetings, we kept meet, minutes, uh, and there was a lot of planning went on. And then that led on to one day he said, "I think we should do have a session on what our aspirations are." So it was sort of a goal setting, setting out where we wanted to go uh, over time. And that has led us on to all sorts of things. And I did 
executive development program for primary producers in Australia run by Rabobank. And at the time I did it, I didn't think I'd learnt that much, really. Um, it was in Australia, and they you have to apply, and they select about 20 people from Australia and New Zealand. So you're working with some pretty interesting people. And one of the things was on farm succession. And when I look back now, I learnt so much from that. And that introduced us into family meetings, which we ran. And <clears throat> you could probably ask me another question about that later, but it's been a huge benefit to our family and to other North Otago families that we've introduced into it. Yeah, so so often part of the problem is, you know, one generation will do really well, but they don't do that succession planning well and, and it does fall apart after that. But yours has gone from strength to strength. It certainly has, because uh, my two sons, Greg now runs the, the pet food company that we set up and Nick has taken over the, the farming side of the business and purchased that. Uh, he started off, he continued the partnership with Peter Mitchell for a year and decided no, he'd rather be doing his own thing. And so they split that up and uh, him and his wife Kate now got uh, milk, 700 cows and uh, run a few thousand lambs and grow a bit of crop and raise all the progeny from the dairy farm through to beef. And mm. So he's ticking on quite well, but... Just like I was, he's got heaps of debt. <laughs> yeah, you can't be afraid of debt, can you, if you want to go ahead in that, that, that sector. But that's that's good for the boys. And are you seeing in the boys too that uh, that desire to try something new? Obviously, um, trying dairy farming and expanding is, is good for them and it's good for North Otago and it's – what do you – how do you see that? Oh, yeah, they're definitely doing that. Um, Nick's been very keen about um, – all sorts of things, and he got into his rare earth potatoes, new potatoes, and and worked through with that one. He's talked about sheep milking. Uh, he'd love to do some more value-added stuff, but um, they're working away, and yeah. when capital's a bit short, you've got to be careful about what you do. Uh, Greg's running top flight, and Ross and I set that up and uh, planting sunflowers in 1974 led on to top flight. And now it's a reasonably big industry. Is it uh, a global business or is it just New Zealand? No, just New Zealand yeah. at this stage. Yeah. Um, might get there, but Greg, there's enough growth in New Zealand. Greg's happy enough and got yeah. enough challenges just meeting the domestic market. So does he supply all everything he needs for top flight or does he have other farms he buys from? Or? Uh, Peter Mitchell still grows sunflower and canary for yeah. top flight, but last year we began... Uh, working with other farmers, and my job currently is uh, liaison, liaising with those farmers to try and build up relationships with yeah. um, other farmers, whether they be in North Otago or Canterbury or Southland. I think if you've been in North Otago a wee while, you've probably seen the sunflower paddocks that we're talking about. So can you just tell the podcast listeners where they are and, you know... Uh, sunflower paddocks have to move because you can only grow sunflowers in the same soil once every six years, and that's probably, even if you get it even longer, it would be better. Uh, so they scatter around where, wherever we can get land. And when we first started off, we doubled our area every year for about six years and then started growing them too often and had too much disease. Yep. So we moved up to the Mackenzie country and, and grew them up there for three years in a row. 
uh, and then moved back to North Otago again. So they could be anywhere. Mm. Oh, okay. I do remember seeing them when you're heading out past Western, out to Napara. <coughs> Quite often they've been left and right either side of the road out there. So that's part of your land or you've just... Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Or part of, it's part of Peter's land now, Peter Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a big thing each season. Um, yeah, people start up. asking... Where are they this year? Yeah. They want to go. They want to know They'll where they are. Probably after the Meraki boulders, they're probably the next most photographed <laughs> thing. They're like the beautiful sunflowers. And, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, certainly, and it's become. <laughs> it's, it's almost iconic, really. Oh, yeah, we, particularly over that summer. We, we, we take it for granted, really, and it's a bit like the the views in North Otago, which yeah. is the same. Yeah. Um, which you can take for granted in, in the late John Shirley when he was working on the irrigation stuff, said you don't believe you can't believe or don't understand how beautiful North Otago is. And when you drive out the Wairika Valley it is pretty special. Yeah. Having, having talked to um, to Peter and, and to Greg, you know, of some of the challenges and changes and so on over the time, you know, one of the things that they've said is, you know, when COVID came along, that actually changed things. You know, imports weren't possible and you know, I think it demonstrates some of the number eight wire thinking and so on around actually becoming more self-dependent on some in some areas. But can you share any stories around you know what what those challenges have been? Oh, a prime example is wild bird. Uh, we do wild bird food, uh, both in seed form and in in vegetable fat mixtures that we now add seed to and a few things. And uh, when Greg was in the UK, his visa ran out and he couldn't work and we had some spare sunflowers and I said, if you could sell these sunflowers over there, it'd be great. So he he went around and shopped about. Uh, he didn't sell any sunflowers, but he found uh, Burgess Rabbit products, which we now import into New Zealand still. And he found um, Unipet made, used to get these coconuts, they filled up with vegetable fat and and made uh, rolls. And he thought, oh, these might go all right in New Zealand. So he arranged a deal with them to import them into New Zealand. And we did that for probably, I don't know, five or six, seven years. But during COVID, the owner of Unipet got to sit in the manager's seat and did a few figures and suddenly discovered he wasn't making as much money as he thought. Uh, and he was hiring hiring labour to fill up containers to send to us in New Zealand. And he said, I'm not going to supply you any more. And Greg tried to pester him to supply us one more container. He said, no, but we could set up business in New Zealand. So he gave us all the all the intellectual property about doing it, uh, even gave us, didn't give us, but sold us some gear that we shipped over here. And so within three months, we'd set up this factory uh, to produce what we'd previously been importing. Uh, and that's a pretty significant number from Greg's business point of view. And that was pretty number eight why We leased another building out adjacent to where our warehouse is in North Omaru. And uh, it's functioning very well. Mm. And how many people does that employ? Just a top flight. Yeah. Uh, about 30. Wow, that's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, just one of those, Business you know, under-the-radar companies that's, that's doing so well. So just one, so how did it start? One day you're thinking, hey, people need some sunflower <laughs> seeds. We think to eat or for food for animals. What, what was the thought process? And you thought, hey, I could provide that. Like, how did you get from... In the, in the late 60s, uh, Minister of Ag and Fishery were encouraging farmers to grow sunflowers for oil. Oh, yeah. And they had a few trials and, and 
there was, I think there were some commercial crops. Uh, and we used to get the odd person coming up the drive. You couldn't sell us some sunflower seed here. And I thought, oh, perhaps there's a market there. I'll find so, birds or private. Yeah, yeah, for birds. Yeah. So in 1974, I put uh, stuffed a bit of newspaper down every second coulter of the drill and sowed five and a half acres of sunflowers, which Ross harvested while I was away in the UK. And that year we sold 27 50-kilogram bags to a lady in Christchurch. And she became our biggest customer as we grew, and she used to buy about $100,000 worth of stuff a year, uh, sold it out of her garage. And uh, she was, for a long time, she was our biggest customer, but I've... That's changed and now been taken over by animates and farmlands and mitre ten. Mm. So you um, it's going back to your stuffing this paper, and I'm just imagining that. So, so you get the the right spacing between. Yeah, so we put, put them in. Um, it was they're probably too, still too close, but they're um, about fourteen inch rows. Yeah, right. And that was different as opposed to if you're going to turn it to oil. Is that what you? Oh. A different type of sunflower. Yeah. Um, the birdseed sunflowers are confection sunflower, which have got lower oil content. Um, and people used to say to me, um, oh, buy some oil sunflowers. And I'd always say, no, the birds, your feathers will fall out of your birds if you feed them oil once. But um, yeah. that's not the case at all because yeah. we grow oil sunflowers and you don't see naked birds flying around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose they wouldn't be very good at flying if they were yeah. yeah. <laughs> Walking around. No, that's very cool. So, you know, we, you, you, you were farming, you were doing your thing and so forth, um, but obviously you were dealing with all of the challenges that farmers in North Otago deal with, you know, every six or eight years or whatever, there's another big drought goes through. There, there was some challenging times and you, you've farmed right through that, through the, the loss of the SEMPs with the, the government and so on. So what, what, how did you deal with some of those challenges? Um, it was pretty tough at times. Um, I remember in 88, outroging a paddock of turnips, and that was a really dry year. And it was in September, and, and we're roguing, going through and pulling out the plants that you didn't want in there. Um, and it was so dry, the turnip leaves were crunchy in September, like it was, wow. and that was a huge drought. Uh, it, it wasn't... It wasn't nice, and you said a drought every six years. I always said that one year you'd make a bit of money in North Otago, the next year you'd spend it, and the year after that you'd lose the lot. Right. So it was, and that's what it was like. There were no young people. Uh, it was, it was quite unbelievable. When you look back, you can't, it's hard to understand what it was like. And so irrigation has had a massive change on North Otago, that's fair to say? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. So you were one of the. So the, there was the original irrigation they took off the Waitaki and they um, ran it down through the plains, and then you were involved later bringing it over the hills. Is that am I correct? And yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah. Um, but but if we back back a bit, when I was at Lincoln, Jim Mitchell Ross's father always used to say to me, "We should be we should be piping this water around here," and the, and there were. Kakanui Wairika Valley scheme was being looked at by the government in those days. He says, go down to the Ag Engineering Department and ask some questions. And I faithfully and loyally did that, thinking, oh, you can't do that. It'd be far too expensive. It'll never work. And roll on another 30 years, and we're opening a scheme that was piped water around those hills. So when I talked about the Mitchells being very visionary, yeah. um, that's 
best indication you can have. And so when I came back to North Otago, um, I was straight into onto irrigation committees um, from the very beginning. And we did, uh, we started off with a water diviner, Dennis Limmer, who water divine for us. And, and then we got the geologist that was doing the wholesome studies. He did a, st- he did a study for us. And um, I think a dozen farmers put in $200 each and he came up with a, an answer. Um, Grant Lederman drilled a well as a result and, and got water uh, from where he thought and then we got uh, Targa Regional Council did a underground water survey that was originally meant to cost a million and I think cost two million in the finish. Uh, and that told us a bit more information and in fact that there wasn't enough, everybody thought there was enough water underneath North, North Otago to water it and that proved that there wasn't. Uh, and then in 1992 they had a meeting, the government had decided they were going to shelve the Wairika Kakanui scheme and there was a meeting in the Western Hall, and that's that led on to the formation of the North Target Irrigation Company. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't quite so easy as that. I know along the way, you know, there was the um, obviously Lower Waitaki had transformed that part of the area, and so on. So people could see the difference it made, but it was also basically the government set that up, and it was a very cheap scheme because of the subsidisation essentially. But um, you know, it was. It was challenging, but yeah, we, we, we had some conflicting um, concepts around, you know, this you know, pipe scheme versus a gravity scheme. So do you want to reminisce on any of those times? Because it, 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 there, were, there were a lot of meetings that happened over that time. Uh, wasn't yeah, we had. Yeah, for, we, we were the, I think we were the North Otago in those days. We were the North Otago Water Harvesting and Storage Committee, I think it was, that was looking at a scheme. Uh, we looked at building a dam on the Kakanui River. Uh, Is that, would that have got past council, Gary? Uh, regional council, regional but... Council. Um, it, it was a 90-metre dam, uh, and they were just going to build it on the river. And flood how much area? Oh, it would have been back in the foothills, so, yeah, I don't know if we'd never got quite that far, but then the Pua Dam blew out. And so that was the end of that story because that it meant... us off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so then we looked at some storage options in um, around the Burnside area uh, near Enfield uh, and we were going to fill it up out of the Kakanui River. But we did some figures on that and it wasn't reliable enough for the amount of money we were spending. And George Berry said, we need to go back to the Waitaki. And luckily we had John Shirley, who was part of Becker Engineering, and he added his technical knowledge in, uh, and we used to meet every week. It was just amazing, really, um, and it went on and on and on. But um, we finally got a result. Mm. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, Alan, Alan McClay became mayor, and uh, you know, he, I think he sort of put in place a mechanism to actually try and get some resolution around the conflicting. Plans and try and try and find a a way forward. Yeah, you're right. The, and and the, I didn't talk about that, but there was another group that thought that it would be far better to build a canal down from Duntroon area um, that would water a hundred thousand acres, forty thousand hectares. Uh, and we always said how ridiculous it was because. 
you couldn't for, to finance something of that scope because the government weren't into supporting those sort of things. And we were already to go in about 2003 and because of their views and the influence they had, we were held up for a couple of years, which was very frustrating. But uh, we finally got them to agree that we could build stage one of our scheme, uh, which was ten, the first 10,000 hectares. Uh, the council had put up the, enough money to build the, the pipework up the hill to supply 20,000 hectares, uh, and Meridian had been involved pretty heavily prior to that. Uh, they pulled out because they, when they pulled out of Project Aqua, which was a, a uh, scheme to put electricity generations, generators all down the Waitaki Valley. Uh, but in 2006, we finally got it opened. Mm. Yeah, that was that was good. I, you know, having been a bit involved um, on the periphery, you know, the the problem with the gravity scheme was you had to build all the infrastructure for the whole scheme, but you weren't going to be. There was only going to be a small part of uptake at the start. It just it was very difficult to try and justify the. You know, no, the, the the magic money, I think that might have been your term, the magic money, uh, just wasn't there to make that happen. Yeah, I, I used to just talk about magic. It wasn't necessarily magic money. <laughs> okay. um, but I remember, like, just the whole scheme going in and pumping it from one area to another. I remember when I was a chippy, we had to pour some pads for the centre pivots. And I remember the Americans coming over because they would put the centre pivots on nice flat land and they couldn't believe it. We, the Kiwis are having them going up and down hills and through... Cutting, yeah, so just a lot of Kiwi ingenuity, a lot of farmers got in and just got it done. And um, I think North Otago, as we are now, we probably have a lot to offer and thank yourself and every member of that committee that just invested, how many hours? You would have invested thousands of hours, can that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you probably weren't the only one. There's probably many others. But you obviously had a passion for the land and a passion for the district, and you could see how it could be improved. And... That's a blooming good story, isn't it, Gary? Someone that just dedicated a lot of time, a lot of hours, a lot of energy, a lot of their knowledge, a lot of hard work. And it probably cost you a lot too because at the time you were researching, you went on the farm or, yeah. Yeah, no, it was a, I, I, I know a bit about how much time the jock and, and others put in and it was it, it was huge. It was huge, but we had, we had a good team doing it all and then we had a good team on the farm and in top flight we had uh, Faye Stewart, she was running the office and she just kept things going and I'd, I'd be there a little bit, but... Um, yeah. Well, we'd still want to say thank you. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for Indeed. investing into the community and, and just changing the face of North Dago, bringing, bringing water through. It's, yeah. it's just been such a blessing to the community and I just wonder if some of these young farmers, you know, nowadays realise you know, what you had to go through to get that, yeah, you probably need to take them. It should be a course, shouldn't it, Gary? <laughs> Before you farm in North Otago, you have to watch the one-hour video of, yeah. It'd be a bit hard to deliver that story. Yeah. But it must be, it must be, um, well, it deserves to be satisfying to actually look around and see, you know, that we no longer have an average age of, you know, close to, you know, 65 or 70-year-old farmers that, you know, the... The average age has dropped down. There's families come back. The rural schools are filling up. The you know the, it, it has brought life back to the community. Yeah, there's no doubt for that. Like in 2007, you'd go to a 
a Christmas party and suddenly there'd be young people with babies, and which was just as you said, Gary. Mm-hmm. Uh, previously it was 60 and 70-year-olds that you'd be fraternising with yeah. and now there's a whole heap of young people. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Did you realise that or did, was it just a light bulb moment one day in 2007 you realised what irrigation had done or did you realise it would bring the young people back? Was that the um, Yeah, I don't know if I would have been able to pinpoint on that one exactly, but... You knew, like I couldn't believe it, in about 2005 the schools opened and suddenly they had 30 more pupils than what they expected to see. And we had about, oh, there was a couple of hundred people here building the scheme and I, th- and I thought that was 101. Surely they, yeah. they were bright enough to work out why they had a whole lot of extra children. But <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that surprised me. I mean, we, we yeah, and I know being part of those conversations before it started, it was it was like... Yeah, you know, our farmers are only getting older. The, the, the next generation is not coming back. What's going to bring them back? It was going to be this. And, you know, this, thanks to a lot of work, well, it, it happened. It's kept them here, isn't it? Yeah. Like, and I think that's the key too. And then so, that, you know, like you're saying, they have children here and then their children can stay in the community and there's a lot more to offer in that. And so farming and the freezing works and that, there's, there's options here for the young ones. They don't, you know, have to go to the big city or whatever. Oh, it's, a, it's a different town altogether. You look at the industrial park out there and the development that's gone on and the busyness of the commercial sector in Omaru uh, certainly keeps it going now. I mean, we just don't have that drop-off, do we, you know, that we, that we would have in those dry years where checkbooks are put away and just nothing, you know, everything stops. Well, the only place they spent their money was at the grocery shop or yeah. clothing shops. There was nothing else mm-hmm. you... You are very careful about what farm money you spend anywhere. That's so, so, huge contrast. Yeah. So no, it's yeah, like I say, you deserve to be you know, have a sense of satisfaction about all of that. So well done. So you you come across to me, you've always got a vision, you've always got something ticking away there or a project. <coughs> so what's the next project or what do you might get an insight here, Gary. We might invest into it. Well, what's the next project, or what do you see for like your grandchildren growing up? What will be the things they face, and what would improve their quality of life coming through as well? Ooh, that's a pretty wide ranging question. That one. I'm just fishing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Uh, like uh, both Nick and Greg have got advisory boards for their business, and and I sit on them along with um, Greg's got a couple of Aucklanders on his, um, as well as Peter Mitchell, who's the other shareholder. Uh, and then Nick's got a pretty high-powered team on his advisory board also, and it's great watching them doing their planning and their thinking and uh, setting the strategic goals because you know that goals are a wonderful thing, really, especially when they're written down. You can It can really take you places that you wouldn't expect to go otherwise, and so I enjoy that side of it. Uh, there are a lot of challenges. Uh, I've got six grandchildren. Um, Webster name only just made it. Jack Webster's the only <laughs> the only boy. <laughs> and it's interesting watch, watching them grow and what they do. Um, depending what their genes are, some are really good at sport. Others are good at um, acting and, uh, and art. And, and so you see all sorts of skills. And it's, I find it 
great just watching your children bring up their children and and watching and admiring and because we've got two wonderful daughter-in-laws um, who really make up part of our extended family and it's and it's great yeah, and over the years, you know, you, you, well, you're saying about those meetings and so on, there's probably a little bit of that scientist can come out sometimes. And, and <laughs> yeah, where, as you're doing all this product development for Top Flight and, and so on over the years, you know, I'm sure that's, that's helped. Um, that, that, you know, going to that Rabobank course, learning about the succession planning, you know, it's helping with those meetings that you, you're having, <coughs> bringing in outside expertise, not trying to do everything yourself. Is it pretty much it? <laughs> yeah, we've done we've done plenty we've done plenty of that. Um, we're not afraid to um, bring in outside expertise. Um, Ross got Peter Alexander, who was one of the leading New Zealand accountants, uh, to look at the situation when before we went into partnership, and he wrote he wrote a report and came down and visited us and and made some suggestions and wrote uh, I don't know. 26-page agreement, I suppose it was, said, that's for the bottom drawer. I hope you never, ever have to get it out. Um, we never, ever did get it out, um, So, which is a good sign because uh, we worked, you know, we our skills complement each other very, very well. Yeah, fantastic. They were wiser. They must have seen you coming out of university and they realised you had a head on your shoulder, so they knew that what they were doing, grabbing you before you... Shot off somewhere else, I guess. Um, so you scientists and you've been a farmer and then something you don't want me to talk about, but I'm going to bring it up. So you've got the Queen's Service Award, is that correct? Or Yeah, Queen's Service Medal. Medal. What does that involve? Meeting the <laughs> Governor-General, shaking hands. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite it, – I guess it's quite special um, – when the because they send you a letter saying that do you want to accept this award and I said to hell no I don't need that she said you do so you need it to reflect that the family support you've had over the years yeah. and yeah, it's not it's, it's not just family support it wasn't just Helen it was the children and everybody and I had had a lot of support from a huge number of people uh, so it's I guess it's um, recognition of. Uh, a lot of community work that I have done in a variety of ways. And uh, so I proudly accepted it from the Governor-General and uh, we had a great family weekend in, in, Wellington. in Wellington at that time. Yeah. Did they put a shingling on it? The, was it um, Parliament House? Or? Uh, yeah, you go there for the presentation. Yeah. And, and uh, afternoon, an afternoon tea. No, there's no, we went out that evening and yeah. enjoyed a bit of good... Wellington Hospitality. Yeah. Where does the medal sit now? Is it tucked away in your sock drawer or is it <coughs> on the mantelpiece? No, I think it's um, – Helen will have it tucked somewhere. I don't think it's in the sock drawer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, those things are – obviously it's really good recognition for you, but like you say, it's it, it does recognise – for any, anyone who gets that, pretty much it's been a team effort to help them get there and the sacrifices that your family's made to – for all those thousands of hours you've been off at irrigation meetings and yeah. heading out, talking to other farmers and so on. So, yeah, it's well done. We get, what I like, you're still involved in North Otago too. So um, you sit on a, still sit on quite a few trusts and boards and committees. I know you're on the Network Waitaki Trust, is it there? Yeah, the Power Trust. Power Trust. Yeah. 
That must be enjoyable. Good. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's an interesting job. It's a very good the network. Waitaki's uh, going extremely well at the moment, and you can have some input in, into that, and you'd like to think you make some, a difference here and there. Um, I've probably been there. I've just about been there long enough, I suspect. I'm getting old enough, and it's time I got out of some of those things. And I know. I think your wisdom's still needed. Um, what I appreciate, you know, Waitaki, just the amount of money they put back into the community, and... Um, sponsorship and grants and things like that so it's just for North Otago having a business like that is just fantastic so you must see a lot of a lot of that side as well do you yeah it's excellent we we're just at the sponsors night the other night where they gave away 120 or 140,000 to a whole range of different organizations uh, and, th- and that is really good and the the lines the lines company is or network Waitaki is owned by all the consumers in actual fact we as a power trust hold the shares on their behalf so it is quite an important the power trust is a very important body yeah. and it, I'd like to we've tried hard to lift the profile a bit more and I'd like to see it raised some more yet but yeah. there's only so much you can do. I mean, it's a very important job is just appointing the directors and making sure you've got the right skills. And, and again, that'll be something that you really bring to the trust is, you know, a good knowledge of, you know, what to be what to look for to make sure you're rounding out the skills around the board table. Yeah, and they've got, I believe they've got an exceptionally good board at the moment. Uh, and there's three outsiders. Like, if you go back a few years, they'd only select directors from within North Otago, which is a bit of a head-in-your-sand approach, I believe. And we now select directors from anywhere in New Zealand. Uh, we've got one from Auckland, one from Wellington, one from Christchurch, very skilled gentlemen, and it's, in fact, one of those one of those outside directors said Network Waitaki is one of the best boards he sits on, which is great. It's a real feather yeah. and um, reflects Chris's, Chris Dennison's uh, leadership as chairman of the board, so it's wonderful. Yeah, uh, certainly good to see the team there and, and uh, you know, the CE, you know, playing a really strong role with the company as well, so, mm. yeah. No. <coughs> so, John, my understanding is you have quite an interest in community groups. Where did that all start? Well, I guess it came with our family. Uh, we were quite oriented to doing our share in the community and I got involved with ski clubs when I was in Canterbury and involved in that manner and then when I came back to North Otago I joined up with Young Farmers which is a magnificent movement and we learnt or I learnt a huge amount from Young Farmers. It teaches you an awful lot about meeting procedures, how to run things, how to do things, you take part in debating, uh, public speaking, stock judging, and uh, plus a lot of social activities. So I met some very interesting people as a result of being in Young Farmers, and I learnt an awful lot about procedures and how you should go about doing things, and, and, and that's been very useful to me. And we've made some great mates from all over New Zealand uh, in the movement, and I look back on that as something pretty special. And uh, I met my wife, Helen, through Young Farmers, so, so it how, is particularly special. Well, how did that happen? Was she also a young farmer? Yes, she was. Yeah. And the first time I met her, we were both in Wellington. She was trying to get it, win a trip to the USA as an exchange student, and I was trying to win a trip to the UK. And 
I Helen missed out and, and I went away for a year and uh, we caught up again after I came back and uh, got married in 1978. Oh, very good. So you feel it's important for all young men and women who are getting into farming nowadays to get involved with young farmers? It's not just for people in farming. Yeah. It's a, a social activity. And when I went to the UK, I learnt there were many more city people and young farmers over there oh, wow. than there were farmers. Yeah. And they partook in all the activities. Yeah. But those skills, the skills you learn in young farmers are just so valuable. And you know, when you go to meetings sometime, like I was on the Lincoln Council at one stage, and there were people there who were regarded quite highly in... in company circles in New Zealand, and and I frowned somewhat on some of their skills um, yeah. relative to all the people I'd met in Young Farmers. Yeah. So if someone in North Otago wanted to be involved, how would they go about doing it nowadays? Yeah, there's not. There were nine clubs in, in North Otago when I started. Uh, now I think there's only one. So it, it's a matter of, um, I'm sure if you Google it, you'll find a contact point, But so I can't yeah, no, that's put good. you onto a name, sorry. No, no, that's good. Um, but what you've learned from young farmers is really help you in everything you do, all aspects of your life and business and everything like that. There's many aspects that you carry right through life and, and it has been a huge advantage and including friendships with the like of Grant Ludeman and Eric Roy and, and Chris Reeves who lives in Auckland, uh, people that were involved at a high level of young farmers and contributed a lot to the organisation. So anyway, that's pretty much what we're going to talk I don't think you quite answer, answer my question on what's his next big thing that we're well, going to jump in on, but oh well, I might have to get him back yeah, on another time. Well, I'd have to say, my next big thing is just to keep enjoying life. I've, yeah. I've been, as I said to you before we started, I've had a very lucky life, really. Uh, and I've got a wonderful wife in Helen who's been amazingly supportive over the years. And um, often I'm not there when she'd probably like me to be there. Sometimes I'm there when she'd rather I wasn't there. <laughs> but um, so she's been a huge part of my life and, and added an awful lot to it. Yeah. So I'd be wrong if I didn't uh, mention the input. Yeah. Well, she's, she she's had. achieved a heck of a lot on her own as well. You know, she, yeah, it's not like she's just sitting at home looking after the kids or anything. She's out there, you know, doing yeah, all sorts busy. of yeah. volunteerism and so on. So yeah, you're you're a, you're a couple that have yeah, supported each other to get on and make Waitaki a better place. I agree. I have a couple of questions just to finish. So you, at the start, you sort of talked about how your father was, you know, he was only given six months and then he lived a lot longer. And obviously growing up, did that, do you think that made you appreciate life more or value every moment? Did that have an effect on you or was it just something you grew up with? No, just something I grew up with. Yeah. 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 But he did get to see you farming, so that was a... Yes, he certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. Did he help out on the farm? For a few diggers? Cut down uh, no, no, it wasn't until by the time um, he was born in 1890 and I bought my farm in 1977. Okay. Yeah. So he was he was getting on. He, he wouldn't, um, he would have rather driven a horse. Yeah. Any more questions, Damien? Oh, that was my main one, Gary. Do you oh, have any it? questions? No, look, I think we've covered things pretty well. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's more stories that yeah. you've been involved with along the way, Jock, but... Um, you know, that, it, it, it's great just hearing the, 
the experiences you've had um, that we've talked about today and the, just recognise the important part, part you've played in yeah. uh, developing the Waitaki district and particularly that North Otago area. Yeah, and I just want to thank you. It's just it's been really good talking to you today. I just enjoyed hearing that story and getting more of an insight, especially into the irrigation. And um, it's really important to keep that history alive for those ones that don't remember that, you know, um, what it was like and what it is now and the changes and how that's changed the district. Um, one irrigation scheme or, you know, a couple of irrigation schemes really made a difference. So, yeah, I want to thank you for that, and you and Helen and the family, and still the boys are still here farming, which I think is a great legacy and the Mitchells who we've mentioned today another great family you know in North Otago district who have given a lot and it's just yeah it's people like yourself and, and the Mitchells and who just made North Otago a great place you, you've given of your knowledge you've given of your sweat <laughs> you probably bled on the farm a few times um, but you stayed here and you made a difference and that's what we appreciate so thank you very much yeah, and there's, there's lots of other people out there that you could tell the same story that have contributed a lot to this district. But um, it's been it's been a lot of fun along the way and very enjoyable, and I'm very, very lucky to be in good health and keep enjoying it. So yeah. it's great. Excellent. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. <laughs> Thanks, Damien. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, John. Well, that was very interesting. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And um, I think Jock's right. There is a lot of other farmers out there that have a story as well. Um, so if anyone out there has listened to that and think, oh, yeah, I, you know, my father, my uncle, um, you know, my grandfather has a good story, let us know. And um, it just makes the history of North Otago. I just, it's fantastic what's happened probably in the last 50 years, how much has changed. And um, it's good to keep that alive. Yeah, we owe so much to agriculture in, in this district and, um, you know, it drives so much in the economy. You know, we're trying to broaden it out, but I, I can't ever see that agriculture won't be the centrepiece of that. We have to be honest, that's what we have. That's the resources we have. We have the knowledge and the farmers and that who know how to work the land. Yep. And that's a big part of who we are in North Otago. Is, yeah, that's my grandparents, you know, were out on the plains and, you know, that's all part of that. So, yes, fantastic. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed that today. It was good listening and hearing um, a lot more, probably from my understanding, not quite knowing the full extent of that and the droughts. You'd already always knew about droughts growing up when you were a kid and stuff, but you didn't. I remember um, a lot of out at Alma where I lived in Totra, they drilled down. Um, a lot of the market gardens were drilling mm. down then. So that's what um, Jock was talking about. It, it'll make sense now. Well, you know, there was a lot of the um, yeah, creation of rural water schemes happened in yeah. North Otago because that's the only way they could get water. Yeah, you know, you could drill right. down and not find anything. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, and that, that's another legacy yeah. that we have. Yeah. We need to get Peter Lee. That's who we need. He's a good North Otago man. Indeed. Mark Gardner. All right. Right. We'll sign off there and um, we'll catch you next week. Thanks very much, everyone.